welcome to Afrofiles. I'm Sarah Daly. On today's episode, we discuss conflict minerals in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The phrase conflict minerals arose from well-intentioned Western organizations aiming to alleviate conflict and conflict financing in the global South. But in the past two decades, conflict has continued and new issues have arisen from the adoption of so-called clean mining policies. To learn more, I talked with two members of the University of Ghent's conflict research group, Josephat Musamba, a researcher in Kivu in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Christoph Vogel, author of the forthcoming book, Minerals, Inc. Musamba and Vogel discussed their findings on the origin and impact of these policies in the Congo, the state of mining and conflict today, and the possibility of a more auspicious outlook. Thanks for listening. So just to begin, uh, would you please both introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about your work, um, maybe what you're working on right now, or what got you interested in extractive industry in sub-Saharan Africa or the DRC in particular? Maybe we can start with uh, Christoph and then move to Josephat. Okay, thank you, Sarah. Um, So my name is Christoph. I'm I'm a researcher at Ghent University currently, um, where I'm leading a research project that is called um, Insecure Livelihoods, um, where we work a lot on different um, conflict dynamics um, in and around the Eastern Congo. Um, But in my um, individual and personal work, and very much together with uh, Josaphat, who will jump in in a second, um, I've been um, working quite a few years on um, the so-called conflict minerals and how um, this this paradigm came came about in the first place, but also how it played out um, in Eastern Congo later on. Hi, Sarah. My my name is Josephat Musamba, um, a Congolese researcher based at uh, Seruki. It's a research center based at ESP Bukavu. And uh, I'm also a PhD student at Ghana University. I'm working on security and the conflict dynamic. Uh, in the past, and currently, I'm work, I work on artisanal mining governance, uh, political economy of violence, armed group and DDR processes. And currently, I'm just working on African civil war and security practices in the eastern, in South Kivu and North Kivu. So did you two meet while working in East Kivu or through a different organization? So how did your collaboration come about? Yeah, um, so we met in, I do think it goes back to 2000, early 2012. We've been meeting rather accidentally through common friends and colleagues in the broader research um sort of environment in Eastern Congo while I was on a trip um, working with an NGO called the Rift Valley Institute. Um, and it's in that context that we sort of met up and figured out that we're actually interested in doing research on the same questions, which back then were um, more linked to demobilization programs in Eastern Congo. And so we started uh, um bundling our forces and uh, and do a first project together. And from then onwards, we've been 
um, sort of uh, working on a number of different uh, projects um, with uh, Josephat helping me a lot in, in some of my research and then me helping him a bit uh, in some of his research as well and other joint projects. Yes, if you want, I can just add something. Yeah, Christoph helped me more um, while I couldn't have all the skills in writing paper either in French, in French, either in English, and he helped me, helped me a lot by publishing some of my piece through his uh, uh, website. And right now, currently, we are working together. He's part of one of my supervisors for my PhD. This, that was a great uh, achievement, but uh, our collaboration is... Now we think that uh, we are going step by step and we're trying to build up a kind of just a, 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 a good and uh, ethical collaboration. Before we dive into the article that you both co-authored um, on sort of conflict-free minerals, I'm wondering perhaps, Christoph, if you could answer this question, if you could give us a brief definition of what a conflict mineral is and how that term came into usage. Yes, sure. Um, so the term is in itself um, contested for a number of reasons, but it's also a term that is um, in public use, not always very precise. Um, there have been people recently that have been mentioning cobalt as a conflict mineral, which is technically a problematic definition. What we can say, like the, the lowest common denominator would be to go back to... Um, 10 years in time, where um, more or less simultaneously the OECD, but also um, the U.S. government um, in its um, uh, Wall Street uh, Consumer and Protection Act that has a section on Congo and its minerals, has been defining conflict minerals um, fairly narrowly as um, coltan, tin, and tungsten plus gold, that are sourced from Eastern Congo and then marketed um, into neighboring countries and worldwide, but sourced from Eastern Congo, where there is um, a reasonable assumption that um, the sourcing of those minerals and the domestic trade might be linked to conflict dynamics. The term as such is older than its official definitions and has been coming up mostly through in the late 90s, um, um, a little bit uh, a sequel or a follow-up on what was known as blood diamonds in Angola or in West Africa before, um, and has been framed then as conflict minerals in the Congolese context by mostly by um, advocacy organizations and, um, and civil society groups. So is the, the sort of primary distinction that either the mining or sale of the minerals fuels armed groups in the Congo, or can the term be more broadly applied to really any extractive industry that foments conflict or where there's conflict surrounding investment in uh, mineral extraction? Well, that's a little bit of an open question. It depends on like where you look and whom you ask. Um, I would say that... Um, Technically, also in the context of all the different initiatives and processes that have been put in place to, um, to stem the, the exploitation and trade in these minerals, um, would relate to this very narrow technical definition. Now, in colloquial language, 
Um, there is also, there are some rarer minerals in Eastern Congo that might be in the same way implicated or not in conflict dynamics that would then be lumped together and also be named as conflict minerals. But the technical definition is a bit more narrow. No, that's really helpful to understand just to frame out the conversation. So I might pivot here to um, the article that you both co-authored in Descent magazine uh, late last year, um, which ties in, I believe, Christoph, to your forthcoming book, Conflict Minerals, Inc. And you can critique the framing of conflict-free mineral policies from mainly Western countries aimed at stemming violence in places like the DRC. So for our listeners who may not be familiar, can you tell us a bit more about your findings? Perhaps, Joseph, you can tell us what it is exactly that the West gets wrong about the Congo or the resource curse there. Okay. Thank you very much for those questions. Uh, I can just, uh, um, I want to share one or two or three findings. Um, my colleague Christopher will add the other. So the, the, the first to be honest, I think that uh, since we start uh, collecting data, I think uh, since 2014 until 2018, I think, or 19, until now, uh, especially, uh, to be honest, we thought that um, the, 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 this uh, initiative, they succeed at some point to concentrate the entire resources produced through the exploitation of mine, the exploitation of this three tin, tantalum, and tungsten. And the, the Congolese governments and it, it, the initiative succeeded to concentrate all their taxes, all their resources. This, that was one of findings because, yeah. All these minor negotiations and the other had to pay it the tax at some point. The, the second, it's it's like a negative impact. Like findings, we in it, um, yeah. Those initiative did not uh, address until now the 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 the, the, uh, the objective of just improving the social economic aspect of miners across the Kivu. Until now, if you can uh, pass through uh, different uh, uh, mining sites, either villages, you can see miners, those one who are digging, those one who are working at the 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 the, the, the place, they are like social. Even though their livelihoods did not change, and the second, I can see that the initiative did not, at some point. Uh, um, resolve the issues of armed group. Somehow they, they said that we we want to trust all the minor um, um, or want to trust this uh, team coming from some area where there is no conflict. But until now, conflict still just uh, uh, it's like a kind of cycle is cycling. So for my from my side, I see that those three can just be part of findings. And Christoph, do you want to add other? Yes, thank you, Josephat. Um, yeah, I think there is there's two broader lines uh, to, to, to sort of respond to, to that question. Um, the first one is like what happened sort of in the 
in the making of the paradigm of conflict minerals. So in the in the period where people started realizing that there is something wrong with uh, the relation between um, minerals used uh, by the West, um, but sourced uh, in the midst of um, what was back then called Africa's World War, centering around Eastern Congo. Um, and then there's a second kind of part is like what happened afterwards in not in the making of the paradigm, but the way that the paradigm has then been used and implemented um, in policies. And I would say for the first, it's more about the misperceptions about conflict more broadly, but also specifically the Eastern Congolese case, um, in the sense that important conflicts, contemporary conflicts and, and civil wars very often do have much more than one single driver because that's why basically they are so complicated because they have, there is historicity, there is um, things that happen in the past and then they um, have impacts into the present. There is social factors, economic factors, political factors, geographical factors, and so on and so forth. And I think the one problem of how the West has been sort of constructing the imagery of war in Eastern Congo was the unique focus on these conflict minerals being the prime and sole motivation of key conflict actors. Um, that, for instance, um, uh, casts a blind eye on all what happened in the region, in, in the Great Lakes region in Central and East Africa in the 90s with rebellions, with civil wars in neighboring countries, with um, uh, 1994, a genocide in Rwanda that had a strong impact on, on Eastern Zaire and later on Congo afterwards, and so on and so forth. Um, a lot of the whole political legacy of over 30 years of um, um, Mobutu uh, rule in what was then Zaire. And all of that was kind of concentrated into one single compelling and tangible narrative for a mostly Western audience. Um, now, once this conflict minerals paradigm was then actually turned into concrete policy and concrete initiatives that were seeking to stop this um, this um, type of conflict financing, um, there was also kind of an implicit promise that solving the minerals problem could solve conflict, which I think today very few of the former advocates would still maintain in the same way. But um, this has kind of also um, um, led to a very insular strategy to tackle something that was much more complex. Um, and even that was difficult enough, which meant that practical initiatives initially struggled to, um, to get um, sort of boots on the ground and to establish what would be called um, clean, cleanly sourced supply chains later on. Um, and, um, yeah, and this has the, this implementation or this slowness in implementation has actually, um, opened up an opportunity for mostly private sector companies to comply with the new policies as issued by the U.S. government and other entities, um, in their own way. And so they have been building, um, closed pipeline supply chains, that were sold as being an assurance against conflict interference, but actually allowed for major international 
companies and um, tin producing industries to actually um, establish a much stronger market control and um, thereby have an influence on pricing um, and uh, terms of trade, etc. While um, there wasn't always a very clear control of whether those minerals now were finally cleaner than than before. So can you briefly summarize for our listeners what the primary impacts of some of these well-intentioned but perhaps not well-executed or well-conceptualized policies were on the miners themselves, you know, on the people who do inhabit areas in the Kivus or in eastern Congo? What was the sort of trickle-down impact? I may start on this, and Josafat can can complete me later on. Um, well, maybe let's start with an anecdote. I, I do remember it must have been 2014, Josafat and I went to um, one of the mining areas where we used to do regular research. We've been talking to all sorts of people and stakeholders, listening to how they run their businesses, how they run their lives, how they um, feed their families and so on and so forth. Um, and then there was this one elder, must be back then around 60-something, who told us that he does remember the days when one of the formerly very large rebel groups in Eastern Congo were actually controlling exploitation in his mine, uh, where he used to work alongside many others. Um, and he told us how that period was kind of not very nice because like, the military control um, sort of um, meant a lot of abuse and a lot of violence, and a lot of intimidation and so on. Um, but then he ended telling us or explaining to us like how despite all the hardship that he and colleagues had to suffer under rebel control, they ended up being paid more for their labor and for their production than they would be paid in the new um, clean system. Um, and so that shows the problems when you sort of outsource uh, major um, sort of public policies in the end to sort of regulate uh, economic sectors of a national economy into mostly um, private hands because um, um, the result could be actually that despite good intentions, the socioeconomic consequences might even uh, be worse than before tackling um, such a problem. So that's on the on the more economic side. Um, but there's also other problems of implementation. So this um, the the primacy of um, of profit basically um, has led to different implementing actors in the sort of conflict free minerals business to um, not really pay enough attention to continuing instances of violence, of corruption, of militarized presence in the mines. And so we've been uh, on another trip in, a, in another mining area in eastern Congo. We, we for instance, once witnessed how um, a rebel group was basically patrolling around the mines, and then we sort of um, approached them and we introduced ourselves and explained that we're here to understand what's going on and that we're doing academic research and well they were being they were armed people but they were sort of pretty nice to us um and then they explained to us yeah 
that's how we sort of secure our mining side and we're with the local customary power and everything is calm here. And uh, by the way, last week, we even welcomed the audit um, team of the um, conflict-free minerals um, initiative. And um, yeah, and that instances like these, they, they basically show that um, there hasn't been enough interest in really sort of um, addressing the underlying issue um, since it was mostly about maintaining and controlling access to strategic resources. But maybe Josafat has, a, has additional anecdotes or, or points on this as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I would say that um, amongst those uh, problems uh, set, presented by Christophe, um, there is the, another problem is uh, how this uh, um, yeah, uh, international NGO, international uh, partner, they try to, to, to resolve the problem, the, how the, the, the problem of stopping conflict and the obligation of maintaining uh, those area, it's like mining sites and other clean, you see. Sometimes you, you, there is um, many conflicts, even though they can just uh, uh, assess a mining site and qualify it like a green place where they can trade and E3 could just work uh, well, but they don't manage all dynamic of conflict and at some point armed groups sometimes they, they, they play a key role these international uh, policy makers even though uh, expert advisor they did not just uh, uh, not perceive understand the the, the 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 reality on the ground when they say okay we, we're gonna uh, start the process where there is no armed group, but until now, some mining pits where the system is working, you can see armed group are just protecting <laughs> uh, miners. They are protecting though the supply chain. You see, they did not address the, the, the thing. The, the other problem is that you tried to advance it, it monitoring, the monitoring. Sometimes they, we, we, we saw um through our step when we used to come regularly to some mining places and so we saw some of this partner they come on the ground to 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 make a kind of evaluation but after they couldn't follow up the issues now if you go to numbi you can see they don't resolve the problem mixing tin mixing mineral coming from mining sites that are not uh, uh, clean to mining sites, clean or, or the places where it key is working. So that this is another problem where uh, the Eastern policymaker they, they 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 did not address. And now the other problem is how to deal with the. I, I said it at the, the beginning. I, um, how to deal with how to to improve the livelihood of miner, because they are the one who are digging tin, uh, coltar, and tungsten. So until now, they are still living under poverty. You see, 
And that was uh, another problem. And the, the, to solve the problem of price, when they, they, they established the price, uh, I think, at London and the other places, um, now they, they, there is a kind of impact on negotiant and the other negotiant, they, they can just raise the price to uh, this miner. And from my perspective, from my, my, my side, I think they should address those issues. If they want, if they want that the initiative to change the livelihood of minor and their their families to change to, to, to create a kind of development at local at, on the ground, I think that they, they should do it. They, at the end, the international either the policymaker the the, the problem with uh, the motivation. You see these uh, people who are working with uh, state uh, agencies like SAIMAPE and uh, the provincial uh, division of mine, those ones who are just uh, managing the sector of mining at the, the local places, they are working with ITKI and others, they don't have motivation. Even though our, the Congolese government is not paying them too much, but you can see people from those uh, staff from ITKI, they have a good salary, they have good uh, condition of work, but at the end, you can see this uh, representative of state who are working closely with a minor, they don't have a good salary. And ITKI, even though this international uh, initiative, they did not address those problems. And from my perspective, from my side, I think, I'm not saying that they, they have to reproduce that practice, but they should take into account those aspects. So it sounds like some of the challenges with the implementation of these policies isn't just that the policies themselves may not be reflective of on-the-ground realities. What I thought I heard from both of you is that there's sort of two points of issue. The first is that maybe a lack of local stakeholders collaborating in developing the policies meant that they didn't adequately address the real issues as they were happening on the ground and then created new issues, for instance, by decreasing livelihoods or simply shifting the rebel group's roles in the extractive industry. But that the second problem has to do with a higher level, that perhaps at the organizational level internationally or with governments like the U.S. that have sort of policy mechanisms aimed at correcting, you know, conflicts related to mineral extraction, that these policies aren't implemented well either. So there's an issue with the policy itself, but also how they're applied in places like Congo. Do you see any solution in this area or do you foresee there being any changes? What what should we be looking at doing differently um, in the next decade to try to either correct some of these issues or at least stop perpetuating new issues? The, the, the issue with uh, the implementation of the policy, uh, policies coming from US uh, and OCDE and the other, was like you have a group of experts, they produce a certain uh, norms and uh, yeah, and they 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 say we they they suggest either obliged to the Congolese government you have to implement these these norms if you want 
you and your just uh, uh, enterprises, even though if they want to export their minor rules, you have to follow up, you have to respect this this in these rules. But the problem is first the process of implementation of the best politics. They did not associate the minors, even though some of their representatives. That was a big problem. I understand that uh, in when they were in the process of uh, to conceptualize those um, uh, the rules was a big problem, but uh, they tried to bring up some NGOs, stakeholder NGOs, and they, they, they tried to bring them in order to implement the initiative on the ground. But the problem is when they came, it was like to oblige a people who were who was like uh, who used to 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 trade differently. This is the the second was uh, um, do you see people when they see it like in a new regulation new regulations it like they they develop a kind of resistance a kind of resistance and reason why sometimes you heard about these uh, smuggling processes. Say, they say, okay, we have another processes now. This is trying to oblige all of us to bring to one supply chains. And sometimes they resist. They can bring some minerals to the, cha to the chain, the clean chain, and the other, uh, they, bring, they, they, they bring it in the other places. Now, the, the other problem is uh, when uh, issues uh, happens on the ground, yes, we saw that Itki and the others, they used to go and uh, to make kind of monitoring incident, but they couldn't just punish. They don't have other alternative to solve that problem. And you see, the other problem was the, to implement the, the, the regulations. Sometimes the Congolese uh, administration, the BGR partners and the other, when you see at some places like Lemera, other Shabunda, you have one or two or three mining sites that have been qualified. And the rest is in the dark place. So that was another challenge. And for the future, I think, if they want to reproduce the system, if they want it to make it really, really uh, to produce a good uh, result, I think the solution, they, they have to associate in the minors, they are representative to associate negotiation before they launch, before they try to, uh, to make those policies. Yeah, that was really, really helpful. Thank you. Uh, Christoph, did you have anything to add? Yes, perhaps I've, I've listened to Josephat really um, going to a great level of detail on what's actually happening in and around mining sites and, and all the different challenges and problems and perhaps shortcomings. Um, I would like to, to zoom out and to sort of show a little bit sort of the, um, the broader problem environment. Um, I'm going to align to the case of conflict minerals and, and Congo but I do think it might be also applicable or relevant to some other contexts, um, whether in Africa or elsewhere in the world. Um, I think one of the 
foundations that actually made it possible that we have phenomena like conflict minerals and the way that they are built up and constructed um, in Western media in particular is the basic imagery that we create about the Congo. And that's something that is very long-standing, that has very deep roots into colonial imageries, etc. how the Congo is, like other countries, um, like other places, has been constructed simultaneously as a place of chaos and disorder, but also a place that is empty. So the Congo has been constructed, the image of Congo is full of conflict and of problems and of whatever else negative, but at the same time, people have been constructing it as totally empty of any kind of governance in the sense of what mainly European, Western, now Northern American people and so on understand as as order and governance and so on and so forth. And this kind of imagery is very stubborn and it's been like accompanying the Congo and its history um, since colonialism and it's still around. And yeah, and then you get fast forward into a situation that occurred in the 90s where all of a sudden you have major violence, major conflicts breaking out that come from a lot of different factors and some of them very long-standing, like um, including colonial and post-colonial hangovers. Uh, we've been talking about Mobutu um, already and, and then other impacts. And then you need to make sense of this. And I think this stubborn imagery that has been built on the Congo has actually enabled the um, the building of a very simplistic but compelling paradigm that the conflict minerals one is in the sense that it posits a problem that is explained to general lawlessness and brutality and disorder. That problem is linked to something that is very tangible, which is mobile gadgets that need certain minerals. So this is the way of transporting a far-flung issue and problem around violence and brutality into the very minds and quite literally into the hands of Western audiences and customers in the form and the shape of their mobile gadgets. And now the solution to this problem has been that, on paper, you promote bringing regulation, bringing order, which is nothing else than what sort of conflict minerals initiatives have been trying to do to a certain extent, but especially sort of to sell to Western audiences, Western customers. Now, while public pressure to do something has been very high after the sort of the heydays of the so-called coltan boom around the year 2000 and so on, the actual interest of the broader international public to dig deeper and understand the sort of more nitty-gritty, convoluted conflict dynamics that have a lot of different drivers, that appetite has been a bit less because obviously people all around the world don't have time to follow on very hard-to-understand news and developments in a place they've never been to. And that's been given sort of the opportunity to um, those driving conflict minerals policies on the ground to sort of 
shift the main objective of those policies towards the idea of controlling markets and resource access and monetizing it, and then eventually paying some sort of lip service to the more noble ethical goal of disconnecting minerals from the actual conflict. And now and that, that's a bit part of the just the broader conundrum that that leads to then the very specific things that Josephat has been mentioning before. And then maybe if I can add one point, um, one other misperception has also been um, a false reading and understanding of armed groups, rebel groups, and so on, and also regular security forces that are sometimes involved in in mining. Um, there was for some reason, because the conflict minerals paradigm is in a way quite sexy because you can relate it so well to this to mobile technology and um, and the digital revolution. Um, these belligerents have been sort of painted as if they were interested in particular in minerals, which is not very true because these people are mainly interested either in sustaining their war efforts and their rebellions, or occasionally in also finding ways to enrich themselves and their partners. However, if you ask around among armed groups in Congo, no one bothers where these funds that they need to operate come from. And that's what we see in places where there's no mining, but there's also conflict. In some places there's mining, but there's no conflict. Um, if we look closer, and we do see that armed groups will be very pragmatic, look around them, check their opportunities. And if mining is one source of revenue that is easier to access or more lucrative than others, they may go into mining. As soon as mining gets more complicated or is not accessible, they will um, engage in mostly in roadblock and checkpoint taxation. So that means head taxes for people that want to move, but also taxation on goods that are transported. And that's actually the real source of income for conflict financing in Eastern Congo. And it's been one of the most important, even perhaps the most important um, sources all through the last two, three decades of conflict, perhaps with one exception, which was um, a period of around six months, around 1999, 2000, where there was a particular high peak of coltan in global stock markets, where the minerals were kind of predominant or like um, visibly predominant compared to any other conflict financing for a short time. But um, overall, it's much more strategic to tax all across any type of good or service than to focus on just one particular commodity. Thank you. That combination of answers, I think, is so helpful and useful. And um, I know we'll, it's, I've learned a lot listening to it, and I know our listeners will as well. Um, thinking about what the future might hold, why, why is this conversation still ongoing? You know, if this began in the 90s and in the 2000s with coltan and, and cellular technology, what makes it still relevant today? Um, I know there are a couple of different dynamics that are changing, thinking about other types of minerals, whether it's rare earths or other types of digital minerals. You know, 
what makes this conversation really important for people to sort of tune in today and continue to pay attention? To me, there's, to be very brief, I think there is maybe three points or so. Um, the first being, and that relates a little bit back to sort of the more long-term historical stuff that I've just mentioned before. It's a story that basically tells us a lot of things of how um, political and capitalist relationships are being made and reproduced based on, well, some sort of a colonial hangover to say it nicely, um, and that for sort of a future that should hopefully feature some form of equal exchange, whether it's economic exchange or other exchange on more political or or, or social levels, um, it's a bit of a tale that teaches us that, um, yeah, that these global relations of domination are far from being over, um, and that with any new commodity that becomes um, strategic at a global scale, there is a risk of repetition of these uneven terms of trade and other dynamics. That's that's one point. The, the second point is that policies are very difficult to make. I mean, I think Josephat and I are both happy that we're not policymakers because producing a sound policy is a serious job. And we have an easy job to just criticize. But I do think that these kind of reflections, they also show that um, policies need a solid factual basis, especially in a, the so-called post-fact period that we're entering, apparently. Um, and it is important to do deep analysis, to do counterfactual checks, to not fall into sort of the easy, compelling traps of explanation that might just sort of obfuscate or obscure like some other dynamics or so. Um, because when we do that, we'll end up with either just incomplete or harmful policies. And that means we need to much more reflect about sort of the broader environment of uh, where policies sort of kick in. Um, understand the actual root causes of certain phenomena, take into account also the push and pull factors that Josephat mentioned, that it's not always easy and that it creates resistance when you sort of try to impose certain policies where you as an intervener, you might imagine that everything is empty of regulation, but in fact, whether legal or not legal or somewhere in the gray zone, there is a lot of governance and a lot of regulation happening everywhere in Eastern Congo, in mines and elsewhere. And so um, this idea of the empty slate or terra nullius is very often mistaken. That's perhaps a second lesson that is probably applicable to all sorts of other commodities or places. Um, and um, a third one, I'd say, is that um, reform in general happens more likely if it's together with the people rather than against the people. So now what happened um, in this case and what is likely to happen in similar cases elsewhere in the future is that um, the one main dominant system that was even a, a monopoly for many years, um, which is called ITSKI, which is a, a tin supply chain initiative run by 
sort of the um, global lobby group of tin industries, or at least uh, spearheaded by them, um, is a system that is paid mostly through levies that are being contributed by Congolese producers, so by exporting companies, by uh, domestic traders, and they put the burden on the miners and the local traders themselves. Um, and that represents around two-thirds or more of the operating cost of the system. Um, the remaining third is more or less covered by donor contributions, development corporation money, and so on and so forth. But the actual consumers and end users and the big international companies using all that coltan or tin or whatever to build capacitators in aviation, in mobile communication they pay around like 1% of the overall conflict-free um, traceability, tagging, and certification system. And that's obviously very unsustainable because those actors that have the widest and strongest capacities to invest in making the minerals trade better, more ethical, um, better organized, cleaner, um, embedded into um, any kind of other socioeconomic complementarities, creating uh, employment, insurance, and other schemes for those involved in the sector and all that. So the actors that are best placed to really lead the way are those who have been doing nothing at all. And that's a huge problem. Yeah, yeah, I understand that, uh, Christoph. Yeah. Uh, I do agree with you, but I should ask, uh, add one more relevant aspect today is, uh, yeah, you just said about it, like between consumers and producers in the West country, in the North and producer in the, the South, the, most of them beside the fact that, uh, yeah, you know, the consumers and they, they want is uh, to to produce uh, computer mobile phones and uh, there is a big demand of those miners because you cannot see right now if you go to Numbi there is other minerals but you don't have a, a big a great, great demand and this led some peoples even between consumers in the west in the north and producer in the the, the south but between as uh, between um, yeah, brokers, you know, brokers those negotiate. They, they want to make money, you know, they want to make money. And if they see a market, a market where they can make money, not easily, but they can make money, this is another side uh, of not a problem, another aspect of why you, you said, yeah, the issues of my minority just relevant today. They, they want to make money. And between those big negotiations and I can say the, 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 not the small, the other who are living with minor at the mining pits and the villages, all of them, they need to get money. You know, this is another side of relevance. I can I just add. Thank you both. That's really helpful. Um, and in an effort to kind of bring our conversation to some sort of close, um, are there any African organizations or stakeholders 
that are doing really good work in this area that we should all be more aware of as we do our research or as we think about um, trying to support a better path forward? Uh, you know, there is there is some African NGO, even though even Congolese NGO, stakeholders in Congo, there is most of them. You have in South Kivu, you have OGP. It's it's among some NGOs who just were implicated to implement even the, its key processes. There is the other in South Kivu and Italy. But the problem is. You know, when they are trying to apply for not uh, for funding, you know, and competition between Western <laughs> organization and African organization. You you can you see this uh, competition between dominant and domini? And I don't know if OCDE, either the World Bank, sometimes they, they used to found those African or Congolese uh, NGO. And if they don't have... I'm not saying good project, but they, they can have their project and their, their theory of change. But, you know, this uh, it's like this phenomenon of North and South dominant. And they want to select these NGOs coming from the Eastern part. Reason why Christoph said about it key part and the other, they come and they try to just work, work with African, either Congolese NGO. It's like... Mm, what we say in French, sous-traitance. It means they have found and they can, they want to work with uh, Congolese, either African and yet. But the problem is those African, until now, I don't know, Christopher can just complete either, correct my argument. I don't know if there is some African, either Congolese NGOs who just uh, brought a kind of alternative pathway of for, um, tracing either of trying to bring solution on that uh, uh, sector. I don't know. Most of them, if they are not reproducing, most of them are working with Western, working with Northern uh, NGO organization. This is the problem. But they can have their ideas. You know, Christopher, if you remember, some people at the provincial division of mine, they told that Congolese government, Congolese state had its own process of traceability. But when, when the, this group of experts and the OCDE suggested to the Congolese government to start to, to follow up, either to uh, set up that... Uh, new due diligence, it, it was a big problem because they couldn't even more export their minor. And the problem is to, 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 to adopt, to adapt. But now, if we want alternative ways of trusting either, uh, if we want alternative way, I can just say, it, it, it means we are now living at the era of what uh, Pierre Stassard, a Belgian professor at Aron said, it's like a pathway dependency. Now, those producers, minor, they are now on the, this it's key pathway dependency. They, 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 they want going out of this system right now. And 
we need to, to think to rethink how to create an alternative way, how to create an alternative, an alternative uh, process of pressing this that would help minor at the bo- at uh, not the uh, at the bottom to to improve their level well than this process which seems to not profit which seems to be benefit from the consumers and the people across the supply chain but from the the miners it's it's nothing it's nothing yeah yes i agree and um one of the things that is that has prevented perhaps sort of a more um homegrown solution um or ownership is is also again linked to um to power relations um in particular economic ones in the sense that there have been critical civil society organizations that have been pushing for alternative ways of 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 regulating and managing um minerals trade um but which obviously then have been seen to some extent rather as competitors to this one incoming international private sector led um traceability scheme and so what happened on the ground is that a number of these civil society actors or other like sector specialists, uh, geologists and others, uh, whether working for the state or working uh, freelance or, or, or more in civil society sectors, um, they've been, many of them have either been bought off um, and given like being subcontracted as consultants um, some of them who were more reluctant to join the the international transnational private sector efforts they have been sometimes blackmailed uh, we know of one or two cases where people have been threatened as well um so it is it is not very easy in terms of um well in this in this whole story to sort of um yeah to build up an alternative and to then pursue it and and defend it because um there's a lot of pressure fields and uh and um power and politics being involved in that story which makes it hard for the so-called um subaltern actors to sort of um balance out things uh with regards to um very powerful um, national and international economic elites that um, have been trying to sort of implement this idea of clean sourcing rather with the idea of how can they maintain or um, consolidate their own respective interests. Yeah, it's really interesting and helpful to get a sense of not just the problem space, but also the solution space and what that looks like and how the same power dynamics that exist in the problem space also replicate in the solution space. Um, I want to just thank you both so much for your time. I've learned a lot. I think this is going to be a great episode. Um, and I want to give you both a chance to sort of record and say goodbye. Well, thank you very much for this. Uh, it's like uh, this debate. 
And for, thank you very much for inviting and associating us for into these uh, uh, discussions. Yes, and uh, we are grateful for you, Sarah, and for Yen for raising up our ideas and for trying to spread this idea so that in America the other people can understand can understand uh, our ideas and what we try to see on the ground and explain to them. Yeah, thank you very much. If anyone is interested in in this research and and these debates uh, in a in a in a much more detailed fashion, I'm of course very happy and looking forward to any potential future reader of the book that should be published in three months from now. And um, yeah, and I hope it will be helpful and interesting for as many people as possible. It's going to be in English, but. I think one of the important and crucial tasks as soon as the English original is out will be really to find ways to to um, get towards the French version because I think in the end, this kind of work, these debates should always be accessible in the first place also for the people that are most concerned with. And yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much. This has been really interesting. Um, I hope we can stay in touch. I would love to hear more from both of you in the future. And yeah, thank you so much for your time. And we'll be in touch with follow-up details and the like. This has been Afrofiles. Thanks for listening. For more information on the origins and effects of conflict-free mineral policies, check our show notes for links to Josepha and Christoph's work. This episode was produced by me, Sarah Daly. Our editor is Ed Hendrickson. Our theme music is from Risen.